Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Good morning from me, Peter Lewis, and a warm welcome to my podcast, Money Talk, for Wednesday, the 12th of April. And this podcast is sponsored by online financial services company Surfing Group, which is headquartered in Singapore. In today's business headlines, the International Monetary Fund has trimmed its forecast for global real GDP growth to 2.8% for this year and 3% for next year. Both the 2023 and 24 forecasts were marked down by 0.1 percentage points from estimates issued in January, partly due to weaker performances in some larger economies. And that represents a sharp slowdown from the 3.4% growth seen in 2022 due to tighter monetary policy. Interest rates in major economies are expected to fall to pre-pandemic levels because of low productivity and ageing populations, according to another forecast by the IMF. It says the current increases in borrowing costs are likely to be temporary once high inflation is brought under control. Consumer prices in China were softer than expected last month and deflation in factory gate prices matched estimates, opening the door for further stimulus from policymakers. The consumer price index rose 0.7% last month from a year earlier, down from 1% in February. This was the lowest figure since September 2021, as the cost of both food and non-food eased further. And China's powerful internet regulator, the Cyberspace Administration of China, has proposed new checks on artificial intelligence chatbots to control how its tech industry rolls out generative AI models. The new proposals said providers would have to submit their products for security reviews before their public release, and it would set up a database to register them. The new rules, released just hours after Alibaba and SenseTime unveiled new chat GPT-like bots, said content generated by artificial intelligence should embody core socialist values and must not contain any content that subverts state power, advocates the overthrow of the socialist system, incites splitting the country or undermines national unity. On today's Money Talk, I'm joined by personal wealth advisor Enzio von Fowl and Richard Harris, Chief Executive Officer at Port Shelter Investment Management. And with a view from Japan is John Byrne, Vice Chair of Research at the Asian Development Bank Institute. And if you want to get in touch, please go to my website, peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. U.S. equities were mixed Tuesday ahead of consumer price inflation data due later today that is likely to filter into the Fed's thinking on future rate hikes. The S&P 500 ended the session flat at 4,109. The Dow rose 98 points, or about a third of a percent, to 33,685. Meanwhile, the Nasdaq Composite shed 0.4% to 12,032. Energy stocks led the move higher as oil prices racked up gains, even as investors continue to fret about a weaker global economy hurting energy demand. Brent crude oil settled 1.7% higher at $85.61 a barrel. Stocks in the Asia-Pacific region rose on Tuesday. In Japan, the Nikkei 225 climbed 1.1% after the new Bank of Japan governor, Kazuo Ueda, signalled that any significant changes to monetary policy may be unlikely for now. Shares were also boosted after Warren Buffett said that he plans to add to his holdings of Japanese stocks and is considering additional investments that would raise his stake in five major trading houses in Japan. 
Hong Kong's Hang Seng Index rose 154 points, or 0.8%, to end the day at 20,485. Futures markets are predicting the index to fall 0.4% at the open this morning. Shares of Alibaba rose as much as 3.8% at one stage before ending the day 1.6% higher after the tech giant's cloud computing subsidiary became the latest Chinese player to unveil a chat GBT application after Baidu's Erniebot was launched in March. Alibaba's program is called Tonchi Qianwen and will possess Chinese and English language capabilities. And one other thing to note in the markets, Bitcoin rose past $30,000 for the first time since June last year, taking its advance since the start of the year to more than 80%. Bitcoin has gained more than 7% in the past 24 hours to $30,190, according to Coinmetrics. And you can get more details on all the latest market movements on my daily blog, which is peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Let's go straight to our guests. And as always on a Wednesday morning, we have wealth investment strategist Enzio von Fahl with us. Morning, Enzio. Good morning, Peter. And also, I'm pleased to welcome Richard Harris, who is Chief Executive Officer at Port Shelter Investment Management. Morning to you, Richard. Hello, Peter and Enzio. Morning, Richard. Now, the IMF has Hello. been saying quite a lot um, overnight. First of all, it's trimmed its forecast for global real GDP growth to 2.8% this year, 3% for next year. Um, at the beginning of its spring meeting with the World Bank, which has just kicked off in Washington, D.C., both the 2023 and 2024 forecasts were marked down by 0.1 percentage points from estimates issued in January. That's partly due to weaker performances in some larger economies. And it does represent a sharp slowdown from the 3.4% growth seen in 2022 due to tighter monetary policy. NGO, I think it's fair to say on this show that you've been less than impressed by IMF forecasts in, in the past. So what do you make of this one? Well, I'll stay consistent, Peter. I think that IMF stands for I am fired. And the problem with the IMF is not a lack of brains. It's the fact that the... Um, the reports are issued by a committee, and as we all know, a committee, a, a horse, excuse me, a horse is um, a camel designed by committee. Mm. So what I mean by that is that when they come in with these forecasts, we all know that things are looking bad. We all know that the U.S. is in the doldrums. We know that China has problems. We know that the banks are having problems. So for the IMF to come out and say, for instance, that the banking problems have been contained or that the global growth is only going to slow by a not point not not point not one percent is a nothing number. The fact is that the, that the Baltic Dry Freight Index is seventy five percent down from its peak in September two oh two one. That's more than a not point one percent shave on the growth forecast. So I just it's it's lacking in originality, it's lacking in foresight, partly because as the economist said, it's lost sight of its mission, which was really to backstop countries in distress, instead going for other things now that are woolly and I'm sure very commendable, but not really sticking to the knitting anymore. What sort of things? Well, I think the the whole, I mean, again, I think commendable is, is gender equality, totally commendable, no problems with that. But the fact is that the banks aren't, the, the third world, the developing countries are having a lot of problems getting lending, getting, getting financing 
um, and that's um, going to then um, just make make global growth much stickier. Again, climate change totally commendable, absolutely vital. Especially what we're seeing with the with the Arctic and all that mess up there. But again, it, it detracts from the core mission of the IMF, which is to lend to countries that need money, and they're not lending because they it's getting stuck in in, in mission red tape. Well, I I can only agree, uh, Enzio. I think one of the problems is that the IMF tends to go around all the member countries and territories with a clipboard asking them what their growth is. And um, uh, naturally, it's going to be affected politically in that sense by uh, authorities all around the world looking to uh, give the figures that they want. the figures in recent years have been dominated, obviously, by the U.S. and China, the two biggest markets. So uh, they, they tend to be very backward looking. And it's yes. very much like the economist joke of, uh, uh, you know, economists look at the economy by looking in the rearview mirror, by driving by looking in the rearview mirror. Uh, and that doesn't really work. But there is one piece of uh, important information, I think, to come out of the report, which is where they warn of a hard landing for the global economy um, yeah. if inflation persists. Now, uh, that's been worded very carefully. But I think when we're looking at this, we have to look at the word if inflation persists. There seems to be absolutely no evidence uh, that inflation is slowing down. There's almost no evidence that interest rates are going to turn tail. Um, And uh, the IMFs, uh, if you like, the looking forward element there, I think is probably quite accurate. They say on on inflation, they're basically saying the current increases in borrowing costs are likely to be temporary once high inflation is brought under control. So they are being a bit bold there. But doesn't this all sort of sound a little bit like um, Jerome Powell saying um, inflation was transitory a couple of years ago and turning out to be very wrong? Well, isn't everyone talking their own book? You know, you had Yellen, Janet Yellen, the uh, Treasury Secretary of the US coming out the other day saying, very much the same thing. You know, don't worry, things are quite tough at the moment, but they're slowing down. Uh, things are slowing down. And if you look at the figures, that's indeed true. But if you're looking at inflation around 5% in the US, and you just use that as an example, compared to inflation being next to nothing two to three years ago, certainly pre-COVID, there's a very big difference there. So yes, we may be getting a bit of a slowdown, but it's after a very rapid surge. The, the one forecast that, that did stand out a little bit from the IMF was that it forecasts global growth at 3% in 2028 in five years' time. Yeah. That's its lowest five-year growth outlook since the World Economic uh, Report was first published back in 1990. And it pins that on some emerging economies becoming more mature, also slower growth in workforce populations. But I'm wondering, is it even possible to make a forecast for five years out when, you know, people have been so horribly wrong in just one year when, you know, things crop up like the war in Ukraine, the banking crisis that people just can't possibly predict? So does this sort of forecast have any meaning? Well, I, 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 I agree with your rhetorical question that I think that it's it's totally academic. It's 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 quite pointless, frankly, 
to be doing these forecasts because we're all going to we've we by tomorrow we will have forgotten what they're forecasting in five years time and who really cares the issue mm-hmm. is the task and as dark dale carnegie would say and the task at hand is to try and get things moving what they're not really addressing yet again is the whole structural issues that we are confronted with terrible middle class in america and things of that nature I, I think, sorry, if you're looking at uh, economies, they do tend to be quite robust over the very long term. Uh, but the problem is it's very difficult for us to look in the very long term. It's one thing to look at a very long term chart and just extend the line, which yes. the IMF is doing. But it's very different when you're actually at the coal face trying to uh, make some money in a company, trying to make some money in a job, etc., and uh, indicators are moving all over the place. So you're quite right, Peter, that people look at the short term. The IMS looking at the long term is merely academic. I suppose the the big question, though, that we're all wondering is um, the, the the recent events in the in the banking system. Is this signalling maybe that there's going to be more systemic stress and that maybe the global financial system is going to be tested um, further going forward? Because the policymakers are sort of rather talking it down at the moment, aren't they? They're, they're talking as if it's all under control. It was a little blip, but they've got on top of it. Do you you agree with that assessment? Or do you think, as we saw in the global financial crisis, when these things tend to get spread out, don't they? You had Bear Stearns, then you had Countrywide in the UK. Something else just keeps on popping up. Um, Do you think we're going to see the same thing again? Well, I think so. I think that the, the FT ran a very, very trenchant article in yesterday's issue about how the medium-sized banks are having more and more problems because they're basically their deposits. They, uh, there's been a lot of deposit run in the in these medium-sized banks, as we all know. Um, and then the loan book is beginning to shrivel a little bit because of the worsening credit crunch, which is exacerbating the. Fed's quantitative tightening, which, by the way, is only about a year old. So I think that these medium-sized banks are going to be facing huge problems, and you can't just throw money at it and hope that it will go away. If nothing else, it will lead to a massive concentration of banking industry. Only the few big ones really rule the roost. And that, of course, then means that the the consumer gets the short end of the stick in America yet again. Mm, Too big to fail. Uh, one thing uh, that was mentioned uh, actually by, uh, uh, I think, the IMF in looking at the banks is they're talking about the weakest link. And in fact, what we saw with Silicon Valley Bank go down, we saw the weakest link go down, um, uh, associated, I might add, by some rather um, loose talk from many of the depositors. In fact, Silicon Valley Bank had a, not that many numbers yeah. of depositors. And I think one of the depositors pulled 140 million out uh, almost instantly. So, you know, no bank could really handle that. But then the spotlight turned to the next weakest link, which was Credit Suisse. And I think that the banking sector is going to continue to have uh, analysts pouring over it, looking to see if there's a weak link here and there. Um, however, I do think the authorities know this, and I do think the authorities will come in to try and cut these kind of bank runs off of the source. It's hard to know, isn't it, the state of banks? Because if you look at 
their filings, their, um, their, their audited reports, and they're just a complete black hole. Even sort of seasonal, uh, seasoned investors with a lot of experience tr- struggle to understand what's going on um, in a bank. So isn't there always the risk that there's something going to pop up somewhere that, that we just didn't expect and know about? Well, a lot of commentators talk about, you know, the concerns with fractional banking. You know, basically, a bank takes in 100% of deposits and it lends out, let's say for the sake of argument, 80% of those. So if suddenly everybody comes to town and wants their money bank, a bank can't really deal with it. But that's the system we have. And that's a system that's produced enormous wealth uh, for the world in the last um, you know, four, five hundred years. Um, and that's just how banks are. And that's why banks are special and why authorities have to come in to bail them out if they get into trouble. So is the banking, do- sy- sorry, is the banking system stronger than it was in 2008 now? No, I think that if I can cut in, I think that the, the a, a lot of the reason for this murkiness and, and the medium and smaller banks is because President Trump decided to revoke a lot of the Dodd-Frank Act and make only the biggest banks really strongly regulated. And he, he raised the, the, the ceiling, basically, so that the small banks can get away with a lot more things than the big banks. The big banks are probably overregulated by now. and The small banks are underregulated. And that's, I think, where a lot of these that that's this dark hole in the funding gap where the small banks now have um, have lost about they have 260 billion more in loans than in deposits. Oh, that's not good because if there's another bank run, as Richard and I and you, I suspect Peter, agree that on deposit run, then these banks are really going to be up against the wall yet again. Well, the U.S. is kind of an interesting place in banking wise because it still has a plethora. I think 4,000 odd small or smallish regional banks. I mean, they're quite big for many other countries. Most other economies, there are one or two major banks within the economy. Um, they've already consolidated. So if you look at Switzerland, they had two banks. They used to have four. Yeah. Uh, they're now basically down to one. Um, that, of course, in a way increases systemic risk. On the other hand, it is easier for regulators to keep an eye on them and to make sure they're managed really on the retail side more as utilities rather than uh, risk-taking institutions. Until we get into the whole shadow banking system, of course, because then you get a lot of this stuff being squeezed into other areas and that's that's sort of what you know that's what the mob was made about uh, under under kennedy and all that with with the with the shadow lending well the amusing thing of course is that with all of these banks uh the people that have squealed loudest have been the richest so if you look at silicon valley bank which yes. was banked by billionaires they were the first one to squeal for government intervention you know when the bank went down i mean Basically, you have to put your big boy trousers on and sort of say, you know, if you are going to take risks in these sort of areas, then you're just going to have to take it on the nose. That's why you're a billionaire. I agree. Could I turn our attention towards China? Um, now, in these IMF forecasts, Olivier Gornchas, who is the IMF's chief economist, He's projecting supercharged growth in China, while other countries revert to a more normal rate. The forecast for China is 5.2% this year from the IMF. That's really in line with Beijing's uh, targets. 
Although the IMF does expect growth to slow to 4.5% in 2024. So NGO supercharged growth in China. Are you seeing that? No, not at all. I, I, first of all, on the domestic, on the international side, again, reciting that Baltic dry index, which we know is only one aspect of the story, but it, it, it's a telling aspect that that index is down 75% from its peak in September of 2021. On the domestic side, if if domestic demand were truly so strong, then I wonder why Beijing quite sensibly is actually pushing domestic demand and saying we have to really get consumers out there shopping and all this kind of stuff um, when consumption now actually only accounts for about 33% of GDP in normal economies. It's about 70 to 80%. Second, thirdly, we've got a bad, bad sort of flimsy economic time. There may be some excess supply of money, but we know that President Xi is cracking down on the, lend, on the banking sector, the fiscal side, we know that the, the the local finances are looking appalling, so you can't expect too many more roads roads and bridges to be built. And so all that we're left with is SOE, state enterprise developers, who are expected to, to play a bigger role. But that means building more and more houses. Well, how many peop- how many houses can people still buy? So I think that again, this sounds to me like the the camel was put in front of the horse. In other words, let's let's talk up a good story with a bit of a finger crossed. Yeah, I, I think the the thing in China is that four uh, percent isn't supercharged growth, and uh, what it's reflecting. And if you look at official figures coming down from six percent over the last sort of X number of years, we're now looking maybe at four percent. Um, we are looking at China moving into the stage that. Every economy has gone through, which is it has great growth and then it starts slowing down, probably to a trend growth of anywhere between one and three percent. Yes. Um, and I think that's just a normal passage of what happens. You know, no economy is is special or different, uh, except when it's developing. Um, and I think China's reached a stage where it's difficult to call it a developing market. It's very much a developed country in, in many, many aspects. Um, and I think that we have to expect that growth, uh, unless you have massive stimulus from the government, which I doubt because that uh, tends to be followed by massive recession, um, I think we're going to see China return more to global trend um, rather than strike out on its own. Just to add to that very briefly, the, of course, there's also the fact that the Chinese economy is now so much bigger than it used to be. It's what we obviously, as we all know, call the base effect. So it's it's tougher to grow by by 10% if, if the base is much higher than it was 10 years ago. Um, so that's also worth just keeping in mind. If, if we were going to see supercharged growth, presumably you would see also inflation picking up in China, but that's not happening, is it? It's, it's actually going the other way. The data yesterday showed uh, the consumer price index rose 0.7% last month. That's down from 1% in February, the lowest figure since 2021. And producer price deflation is, um, is accelerating. It, producer prices dropped 2.5% in March. This isn't consistent with strong growth, is it? Uh, I think the the thing with that is that China is on a different cycle from the rest of the world. It yeah. came out of COVID uh, much later. Therefore, you are going to see uh, greater growth as it comes out. And I think we've all been surprised that we haven't seen the explosive growth we saw in um, in the West. It's been more muted. But I think there's no doubt that people will go back to traveling. They will go back to spending all the things they couldn't do uh, during COVID. 
Um, so China is on a different cycle. And it's also more of an industrialized country. So as commodity prices ease from the COVID period, then that's going to flow through to the economy. So I see it being, uh, dare I say, the reduction in inflation being transitory uh, um, as opposed to um, uh, as opposed to something that uh, is really appearing to be a real trend. Yeah, looking at my economic talk, I agree that the Chinese economy is still, in a manner of speaking, can, the, the economic time is characterized by an excess supply of money and an excess demand for goods. In other words, there's still a bit of demand around, even if that inflation, the demand side of inflation is, pick, is moving down. Whilst in America, as, as Richard was pointing out, the cycle is quite the opposite. There's an excess demand for money, what we Fed having tightened some time ago, an excess supply of goods looming. And for- I think the interesting... Sorry, Peter. No, no, you carry on, Richard. Uh, I, I was just going to say, I think one of the uh, more interesting metrics to look at in the next uh, few, uh, maybe the next six months or so, is going to be economic growth and corporate profits, because inflation yes. looks as if it's going to continue on trend. Interest rates yeah. continue on trend, I go up. Um, unemployment is, you know, employment is pretty steady. Uh, the big question is, are companies going to make less money if they do that? Will they start laying people off? And that is going to be the real sign that we may see the end of an interest rate inflation cycle. But that's not happening yet. And there's no evidence that it's going to happen in the near term. And I think ca- there's a bit of a slow motion um, recession coming in with with my very hackneyed forecast years ago already of a form of stagflation, a higher inflation, um, as Richard was saying, three to four percent, maybe even five and um, slower growth coming through. We see it already with the, with the firings in the financial sector and the tech sector, so I would respectfully differ a little bit there. Um, but no, it hasn't hit big time yet. I think the more the quantitative tightening hits, the more the credit crunch hits, the more we will see this, the, the, the worsening in the labor markets. Okay, well, thank you very much for your thoughts there. Great discussion. You heard there our regular Wednesday morning guest, Enzio von Fahl, wealth investment strategist, and also Richard Harris, who is Chief Executive Officer at Port Shelter Investment Management. I'm joined now by John Byrne, who is Vice Chair of Research at the Asian Development Bank Institute. Good morning, John. Good morning, Peter. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Now, yesterday, new Bank of Japan Governor Kazuo Ueda um, has taken over the reins uh, from who has taken over the reins from Haruhiko Kuroda, um, held his press conference, um, and he rather gave the impression that um, negative interest rates and yield curve control and all that are going to be appropriate for the current economy, um, at least in the in the near term. So, what do you make of that, John? Yes, I think the transition to the new governor has been very smooth. And this is helped, of course, by the fact that we don't expect any change in monetary policy or the underlying monetary policy framework, at least at the current juncture. Um, I think that communication at the press conference was very clear. Um, There will be close monitoring, of course, on inflation developments during the course of the year and the factors that will be driving that both on the external side and um, domestically, uh, particularly uh, the impact on uh, coming from the wage side. 
Is it sustainable, though? I mean, the, the market is expecting at some point, or maybe at some point soon, for there to be some change, because inflation is picking up, isn't it, in Japan? And also, you've got this huge differential now um, in rates between Japan and the rest of the world. That's right. I mean, um, I think it's well understood that inflation is amplified in Japan, particularly um, given its historical level. Um, it has come down somewhat, I think, um, to around 3.4, 3.5%. And that's even in excluding the volatile items. So that's that's looking mm. at core inflation. I think that um, one thing to bear in mind is that once these base effects fall out of the calculation, we, we should look be looking at an inflation level more in line with the target. Um, and that is something that may materialize maybe not this year, but certainly during the course of 2024. Um, so this really um, underlies the decision to maintain the, the current monetary policy at, it, at its uh, prevailing level. Um, but of course, you know, th- things may change. And particularly from the external side, there could be factors which could inflation, could affect inflation. Um, as you know, as I'm sure you're aware, uh, wage negotiations are being closely watched in Japan. Um, the large unions agreed on a 3.7% uh, rise, um, which is historically very high. Mm. And this, of course, would be, um, you know, higher than the inflation target. So it remains to be seen whether this would uh, spill into economic activity and the type of uh, inflation that is desired, which is demand-driven inflation. Mm. And, and if you look at the last Tankan report, um, those wage increases and, and other things seem to be feeding into um, inflation forecasts going forward, don't they? Because businesses are now forecasting inflation for the coming year at 2.8%, which is above what the Bank of Japan is, uh, is forecasting. So it does, seem to be, um, it, it does seem to be filtering through, doesn't it, in, in sort of um, certainly expectations. Yes, I mean, there, there's a little bit of uncertainty, I would say, in this regard. Um, we saw recently large uh, sales of bonds by Japanese firms, and th- this would, you know, point to some concerns about future tightening going forward. And this is sort of like um, a hangover, if you like, from what we saw taking place with SVB in the US, which, of course, was very much affected by tightening uh, US monetary policy and its holdings of, of treasuries. Um, you know, in the Japanese case, there are large holdings, not only of U.S. treasuries, but also uh, Japanese bonds. And, um, you know, a tightening in, in policy would have implications for that, although not at the scale of what we saw in the U.S., because there's, of course, a much more diversified uh, set of, of depositors in, in the Japanese case. So do you think there's possibly an SVB hiding out there somewhere in the Japanese banking system? I think the Japanese banking system is uh, largely much more resilient uh, in terms of the level of underlying capital and liquidity buffers that it holds. Also, you know, as I said, the the nature of the depositor base is much more diversified. Um, and, you know, when you have this type of diversification, it obviously is a, is a buffer in itself against uh, external shocks. And it's it's good for resilience in this regard. 
I suppose coming back to Mr. Oedo, one of, one of the things I'd like to hear from him, which he hasn't spelt out yet, and, and maybe it's a difficult thing for him to spell out, and we've seen the Bank of Japan grow its balance sheet now to about five trillion US dollars. We've had 23 years of, of quantitative easing. How on earth does he get out of that? How on earth does he somehow manage to wind that down without causing chaos in the, uh, in the financial system and the markets? Yes, it's a very good question. I think that, firstly, communication to markets is vital. Um, and this would alleviate any you know, financial stability, uh, negative financial stability implications that would come from that. But of course, in order to warrant um, a shift in monetary policy, it's necessary to, um, you know, observe the type of uh, sustainable inflation that's, that, the, that, that the target is, is aiming towards. And at the moment, it's, it's unclear, um, certainly for 2023, whether this will be something that is achievable. As I said, when the base effects fall out of the calculation, we are likely to um, observe inflation rates much lower than what we see at the moment at over 3%. Um, so I think that communicating uh, this to markets and also understanding that, you know, what we're really talking about here is um, achieving sustained inflation, but... Um, which is demand driven and, and because of course monetary policy is a is a demand management tool. So um this will be an important factor in, in any any shift in monetary policy going forward. And and presumably that any shift in monetary policy does have global implications, doesn't it? And global risks as well, not least because Japanese pension funds and, and banks own huge amounts of uh, US Treasury bonds. I think they're the largest holders in the world now, aren't they, now, now that China has sold some of its um, off. So presumably we've got to look out for what, what the global risks of this could be. Yeah, absolutely. That's an excellent point. And I think, um, you know, fiscal sustainability is something that we haven't really been talking about in, in Japan for many years because, of course, uh, monetary policy remains um, at you know, very low levels or, or even negative interest rates. Um, but, of course, as in a scenario, let's say, where monetary policy would tighten by, let's say, 100 basis points, this would have severe uh, implications potentially for fiscal sustainability. And, you know, the IMF released its Article 4, uh, I think, on April April 6th last week um, for Japan, and noting that, you know, fiscal consolidation is crucial uh, uh, going forward over the medium term. Um, and I'm sure that this uh, factor of potential tightening in monetary policy was a key consideration. Um, so, yeah, th- that would be one of the concerns. Um, so, so, you know, any tightening would need to be done in a, in a smooth way and also bearing in mind the implications for, for fiscal sustainability, given the, the issues that you mentioned. And, and in the IMF's global growth forecast, which it released overnight on Japan, um, it's revised down its forecast now. It expects growth to be 1.3% this year. It was forecasting back in January um, 1.8%. That's quite a sharp um, revision downwards, isn't it? Is that something that you concur with? Yes, I think the downward revision is closely related to what we have observed in the global economy. So, you know, there are pressures 
as a result of that for for Japanese uh, the Japanese economy on the on the external side on the domestic side for Japan you know accommodative monetary policy will still be important for driving consumption business investment exchange rate volatility is now much lower than it was during the course of 2022 so this this also helps business investment but on the external side there are still concerns um, you know the US economy is still sort of in, in a tightening phase in its monetary policy. Inflation seems to be a little bit sticky in the U.S., and this is having implications for not only Japan, but obviously uh, the, the rest of uh, the global economy as well. Finally, on a totally different topic, but something that is very topical out here at the moment, ChatGPT. We've seen Alibaba and SenseTime um, here launch their ChatGPT-like um, bots. Lots of talk in the US and China about how to regulate um, the, the, these types of applications. What's happening in Japan? Is this something that is grabbing attention over there um, as well? And are you seeing um, equivalent Japanese versions of ChatGPT bots? Yes, well, you know, this has been in the in the news recently about ChatGPT, um, and you know, there there are talks about of an expansion to to Japan. Um, I think one must be concerned about this. Of course, it's important for potential impacts on productivity and competitiveness, which are which are very important, particularly in the case of Japan. But you know, there are concerns that could be implications for inequality and you know there the usual um drawbacks with these types of uh you know innovations that, in terms of the uncertainty that they they have at certainly at the initial stages so i think um you know anything that can be used to to boost productivity but in a manner which does not um you know contravene inequality or uh, can can do so in a sustainable way is something to be uh, to be welcomed. But again, I would exercise some caution in, in opening that, uh, that across the board. For example, in universities, there are some concerns that you know it could uh, affect uh, the you know the the fairness with which uh, research is undertaken and things like this. John, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. That's John Byrne, who is vice chair of research at the Asian Development Bank Institute. And thank you to my guests uh, this morning. And thank you uh, for listening. Tomorrow we'll have the latest business and finance news as Asian markets open. And joining me to discuss those headlines will be Lashar, Asia Chief Economist at BBVA, and Dickie Wong, who's Head of Research at Kingston Securities. And with a view from Taiwan is Ross Feingold, Business Development Director at SafePro Group. See you tomorrow. Money Talk. 